G'day mate, 40 here. So my solution to our homelessness and crime epidemic, right? I've, I've drawn it from a model that's already working. So in hospitals like San Francisco, they are so overrun by the expenses of dealing with the homeless that they found it is easier, is less expensive to house people. So their most expensive homeless patients they have put them in housing and provided them with the support that they need, all right? And so, in essence, my, my solution to the homelessness and the crime crisis is that we focus on those who are the most disruptive, right? The 500 most disruptive people on public transport in New York City or Los Angeles or Washington, D.C. or Chicago, they've got to be dealt with. Steve Saylor had a, a blog post about this, so... You take those homeless who are causing the most disruption and the most expense, and they have to be dealt with. They either need to be placed in housing with appropriate support, or if they're committing crimes, they need to be arrested, imprisoned, prosecuted, or they need to be put into mental asylums. So those people who are causing the most disruption and damage to society, whether through criminal activity or just making nuisances of themselves, particularly in public spaces, particularly disrupting, say, public transport or the core downtown areas of cities, right, they have to be dealt with. So you put your, your most resources at dealing with those who are causing the biggest disruptions, those who are committing the most amount of, in particular, violent crimes and just disrupting the lives of hardworking citizens who are contributing to your tax base. So I'm borrowing from something that's already working at major cities in the United States where hospitals find it is cheaper to house their most expensive homeless patients and to take care of them and to provide them with the support that they need. And so we just extend that model at dealing with those homeless who are causing the most complaints, most disruption, right, who are causing the most damage to businesses, and they have to be removed from a homeless situation. So they either voluntarily go into supportive housing with all the infrastructure that they need to stop being a threat to society, or they have to be prosecuted for their crimes and put away either in prison or in you know, mental health facilities. So there, in short, is my, is my solution, my thinking for how to deal with the homelessness and the, the crime crisis. But I need a drink. But the admission of that is a challenging thing. Because it really starts to shatter our idealized self that I am in control. I have power. My dad's, you know, Herb talked about it as our culture is obsessed with self-reliance. You can do anything you set your mind to. That's what, that's the, you know, the defining characteristic of our, the American ideal, the American culture. Well, I remember Father Martin used to say, if you want to understand how useful willpower is in terms of dealing with alcoholism, he says, try to use willpower when you have diarrhea. It just doesn't work. No matter what you do, if you have to go, you have to go. And he says, if you have any question of what powerlessness is like, just think about that. I love him. He was he was a very special man. Okay, that's uh, psychologist Alan Berger. He's written a lot of books, and uh, he's got a terrific YouTube channel that I spend probably 30 minutes with a day or so, Optimal Recovery and Emotional Sobriety. Okay, now that I've achieved some optimal recovery and some emotional sobriety, let me get to my next topic, and it's a continuation of my last stream. So the last stream ended with Elliot Blatt writing into the chat, Luke Ford, are you still an ethical monotheist? And the answer is yes. But 
I don't really talk much about ethical monotheism on this stream because I'm not sure it has much explanatory or predictive power. So it has a lot of power for improving the quality of your life, certainly for some people, but I'm not sure that it has much explanatory or predictive power. So, for example, that was a key Nathan Kofner's critique of Kevin McDonald's theories about the Jews, that they, they lack explanatory and predictive power. So what, what makes a social science theory powerful is if it has explanatory and predictive power. Now, poetry can be beautiful and humor can be beautiful and you know all sorts of things can be beautiful, theology can be beautiful uh, without having explanatory or predictive power. So explanatory and predictive power is not the be-all and end-all of theorizing about life, but I was just thinking as I was walking this evening, you know, why don't I reference ethical monotheism much on the show, given that it plays a pretty big role in my life, but I'm just, just not aware of it having tremendous explanatory predictive power about what's going on in, in the, the world around us. So there are all sorts of beliefs, I think, that help an individual that don't necessarily have much explanatory or predictive power. They, they provide comfort, they provide guidance, they provide an in-group, right? They provide purpose and meaning to life, they provide rituals, right? These, these are some of the benefits of uh, religious beliefs. But I want to go back to this uh, terrific uh, 2011 book by an English atheist professor, Stephen Law, Believing Bullshit, right? What, what happens when you get sucked into an elect? How not to get sucked into an intellectual black hole. And so when I encountered Dennis Prager on the radio on KBC in the fall of 1988, I was pretty desperate. All right. I was desperate for meaning because my life had fallen apart. If you're desperate for meaning, that's usually really bad news because it means that your life is not working. Right. We are just developed by, by evolution or by God to primarily be concerned about our family and then our extended family, and then if there's room after that, our friends and our in-group and, and our tribe. That, that's how we built. And if you're spending a great deal of time thinking about meaning, I think for most people in that conundrum, there's something misfiring, miswiring, something not working. There's something wrong with you if your life is not primarily about your family. And hey, that's me. My life is not primarily about my family. I've certainly you know, gone down some wrong paths in my life. Right? All my life, people were telling me that I needed to eat meat to be healthy. Right? Hundreds of people told me that. I ignored them. So most of my life, I thought I was just so much smarter than everyone else. But in all sorts of key, important areas, I was so much dumber than everyone else. So it's easy listening to live streamers, to gurus, to preachers, to peddlers of meaning, right? people in the wisdom genre, very easy to fall into a bubble of belief that while seductively easy to enter, can then be almost impossible to think your way out of again, to quote Stephen Law. So what made Dennis Prager's belief bubble so seductive to me? And the first thing that makes a belief bubble seductive is that there's something wrong with you, right? You are not rooted in your family, taking care of your family, enjoying your family, building your family, protecting your family, and providing for your family, right? So the, the people in Kenya who followed that evangelical Christian pastor to starve themselves to death so that they could meet Jesus, or the people who followed uh, Jim Jones to Guyana, 
right, and the people who followed other cults, uh, David Koresh, to their death and destruction, do you think that they had meaningful, fulfilling you know, family lives prior to encountering these gurus? No, there was a giant emptiness in their soul. That some people meet that emptiness in their soul through alcohol, other people through pornography, other people through extreme politics, uh, other people through workaholism, and some people meet it through trying to find meaning. But if you're desperate for meaning, you're almost always going to go wrong. All right? And so the thing that makes a belief bubble so seductive primarily is that you are particularly vulnerable, right? If you're busy providing and protecting for your family, you're highly unlikely to fall into some seductive belief bubble, you know, peddled by Nick Fuentes or some other guru. So on the surface, here was Dennis Prager's belief bubble. And on the surface, this is what I found so seductive, like it provided me with meaning in life. Dennis Prager said, you are needed like in the fight for good values. It's like, wow, like I was sick. I was bedridden. My life had fallen apart. You know, nothing was working for me. I was just, everything I'd put my hand to, it just turned into a giant failure because I no longer had my health, which was due to the stupid vegetarian diet that I was raised with. But I felt like I was needed in the fight for good values. That was incredibly inspiring. Then when I started making a partial recovery of my help, health and I wanted to get out there, you know, fighting for good values. And I like question people and I try to, you know, fight for the good values that Dennis Prager articulated. Then Dennis Prager would say to me, well, you need to ask yourself, you're the you know, right person to stand up and say these things. And so it was incredibly discouraging to me. It was like a very rude shock to, to realize that, yeah, I was needed in the fight for good values, but as someone who would lick envelopes right i was needed in the fight for good values as someone who'd sleep the sweep the floor i was needed in the fight for good values for, you know as someone who would you know file documents i was needed in the fight for good values in all sorts of menial roles like i thought i was needed in the fight for good values in you know roles up front in front of the camera like in front of the media like you know getting lots of attention and, and women that's where I thought I was needed in the fight for good values. But Dennis Prager, when he witnessed me fighting for good values, he uh, suggested, uh, you know, you need to ask yourself, are you the right person to say these things? And, you know, is this the, the right situation for you? And, you know, are you helping the cause? Or are you hurting the cause? Because obviously I was, I was hurting the cause more than I was helping the cause. Elliot Buss says what people call mental problems are really emotional problems. Well, our thinking and our emotions just kind of go together, right? They all occur in the body. So the body is affecting our thinking and our emotions. Our emotions are affecting our thinking and our body. Our thinking is affecting our body and our emotions. They're all affecting each other. Look, did the chronic fatigue set in soon after you left your parents' house? No, the chronic fatigue syndrome set in when I was in my parents' house. I just woke up with what seemed like a bad flu in February of 1988. And I was not the same until about two years ago when I discovered beef organ capsules. So Dennis Prager's belief bubble, which I was an atheist at the time, but I was desperate for meaning. And so I knew that like, God was probably the, the best way to find you know, sustainable meaning in your life. And so Dennis Prager said, with, without belief in God, murder is not objectively wrong. And I agree that, with that. Without belief in a transcendent source of morality, all you have are opinions about morality. So still, still believe this. 
belief that without God, you can't produce a good society. I don't believe that because I see that the Japanese, for example, have produced a really good society, a more moral, more law-abiding society than anything produced by uh, monotheists, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, belief that people aren't basically good, I still believe that. Belief that the most important thing in life is to develop good people, I believe that. But I differ with Prager. Prager thought that the primary way to develop good people is through moral instruction. And I have reluctantly come to the belief that the best way to produce good people is to try to facilitate you know, people having a family and being connected to family, extended family, friends, being able to you know, choose their own community, having freedom of association then when people are bonded to other people, they're going to be much less likely to act out in some antisocial and destructive way. And moral instruction isn't really going to cut it, right? It can be a nice sprinkle on top, but what you fundamentally need to do is calm people down through connection to other people. So I know from my own experience, when I am connected to other people, I tend to behave and speak in a much more pro-social way. So when I was struggling, right, with just tons of credit card debt, but see, between 2011 and 2016, I was much more susceptible, or 2011 to 2015, I was much more susceptible to saying, you know, extreme things and thinking extreme things because I had very little in my life that was worthy of protection. I was just carrying over $50,000 in credit card debt. When I started paying off the credit card debt, building more friends and community and building more good things in my life and making more money, then I had more things to protect, and then I was thus incentivized to speak and behave in a much more pro-social manner. So between, I don't know, after the Oberfell ruling <laughs> up until about 2015, I kind of had a uh, fairly jaundiced attitude towards society. I was like, ah, you know, part of me just wanted to, you know, burn it all down and start again, I guess. All right. Belief in God, yeah, still believe in that. Uh, belief that God gave the Torah the divine recipe for goodness, yes, I believe in that. Except I have to admit that there are other recipes for goodness that uh, empirically seem to be more powerful, perhaps, than even the Torah, such as whatever the Japanese have going on. Uh, belief that Judaism embodies ethical monotheism, I am quite skeptical on this. I believe that Judaism is the religious component of uh, Jewish tribal identity and that there is an ethical monotheist stream and strand in there, but say that Judaism is primarily about ethical monotheism doesn't seem right. Uh, belief that hatred of Jews represents hatred of God, I no longer believe that. Sometimes it does, mostly I don't think it does. And Elliot Blatt, what's going on, bro? Uh, blessings. Late show, man. What's... Yeah, I, I... you know, other things come up, so schedules change, bro. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh interesting topic um i'm just trying to think of i just want to follow a thread a little bit here um so how old were you when this uh chronic fatigue set in so it hit me in february 1988 so i was 21 21 okay and um i i have a theory that you had a pretty strict upbringing is that true yes and, but but, um, but not yeah, moderately strict. So, I mean, basically, yeah. I when I left the house, I would pretty much do what I wanted and largely got away with it. I'd code switch as soon as I left the house. And we mm. also, at age 14, we got a TV. Yeah. And mm. at, at age 16, 17, I started going to movies with uh, the permission of my parents, though they didn't know 
some of the movies I was seeing. Yeah. Okay. But like, um, I'm comparing, I'm comparing your story to stories of other people I know. And they grew up in, um, not, they grew up in Christian science, not, um, Seventh-day Adventism, but they're, I don't call them similar, but they're, they're not, they're sort of offbeat Christian denominations though. They're not sort of mainstream Christian denominations. And I just wonder if there's a, like a correlation between there's like this, uh, a certain level of dogma that you grew up with. And when you, when, when you're old enough to sort of stand on your own two feet, you have to do a lot of settling and find and, and get your legs underneath you intellectually, because you're finally able to sort of, play with some of those uh dogmas that you're not you're no longer compelled to believe in and that leaves like a vacancy it leads a it leads a, a void in your soul uh that needs to be filled with something else am i on the wrong track here no i think you you're on the right track because the way i would phrase it is if you're raised in a high intensity religion Right, Seventh yeah. Adventism, Orthodox Judaism are high intensity religions, or I would assume Christian Science is a high intensity religion. Then, as you grow up, and and let's say you start to leave that high intensity religion, you've got to find something else, probably equally intense, to replace it. Yeah, yeah, and because um, you've led a pretty clean life in terms of like. I mean, your diet and, you know, a vegetarian diet, you know, is a, it's a double-edged sword. It's also, it's pretty low impact on your body. I mean, it's like, uh, it may not give you all the nutrition that you need, but I think it, it, it probably uh, doesn't weigh you down the way like a, a you know, a strong, strong meat and fat diet that, that a lot of people eat in America. Um so I don't, I, I don't know. I, I'm just working with the puzzle here. I'm just working with the pieces. Um, I, I didn't have, you know, I, I, I'm kind of tired myself. You know, I've been, I've been really uh, exhausted physically and, and emotionally these past weeks. And um, I, I just, I don't know if it's chronic fatigue or not, or just a period of, of, of fatigue. I think it originates in the body. I, I, I think your your thoughts and then your feelings, they sort of do this dance where they reinforce each other, you know, and they, they create sort of emotional knots that have actual physical uh, repercussions and they need to be unwound somehow. And they need, or they need to be, um, you know, kind of, blotted out with alcohol or some sort of drugs so um I, i'm sorry luke I, i'm just rambling here no no i think you're right that they definitely need to be blotted out with alcohol or drugs yeah and because you didn't really drink you don't drink and you don't do drugs you eat you know a very you know you you ate the seventh Adventist diet which is pretty uh I, I think it's healthier than most diets. I don't think you can attribute these problems to to your diet growing up. Um, okay. 
Right, but, yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's just my opinion, but who cares? <laughs> uh, uh, I wish I, uh, I wish I'd thought through before I call it. Cause no, I no, I've got, I got, I got, I got, I got questions for you. So, uh, how many people do you see in real life? Like, how much time in a typical day do you interact with people face to face who bring you joy? Me personally. Yes. Yes, you personally. Zero. Well, Zero. I would I would wager that's the primary reason for feelings of exhaustion because uh, for me that's the <laughs> primary source of energy. For me, is interacting with people I enjoy. Face to face. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I I I don't do this by choice. It's not like I don't try. But yeah, when I when I interact with people. I guess there's just so much friction and tension and neurosis. Um, and I don't feel like I'm the one bringing that. I feel like people that are open to interacting with me generally have very serious problems and they're, they're looking for somebody to take those problems away from me. So I, I know that's a, a very self-serving thing to say, but I think it's true. It's been true where, um, uh, there's, uh, there's been a sort of degradation of the quality of social interaction, at least in my life. Um, and so I've sort of, you touched the hot stove so many times that it's just caused me to retrench into semi-solitude. And, and this modern internet lifestyle certainly supports that. So I sort of get like the simulacra of, 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 real human interaction through the internet, but it's, it's not the same. And I acknowledge it is a problem. When did you last consistently have say more than an hour a day on average of joyful face-to-face -face interactions with people? Um, about five years. It's been like five years. <laughs> I used, I used to, yeah, I used to be, I used to be like part of like a tennis club. I would play tennis three or four times a week. I would hang out with people. Uh, but slowly, one by one, they've moved away. Everyone's moved away. And um, there haven't sort of been people that moved in to take their place. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and, then, and then again, but, you know, you know this basically with the with the you know, 2016 there was it, it, there seemed to be some sort of shift in the in the whole social landscape where um like a lot of people that i knew irl i made the mistake of disclosing that i, I was pro-trump in 2016 and they ceased wanting to have anything to do with me whatsoever now i didn't flaunt this i didn't um, you know, I didn't go out of my way to mention this, but I, I did sort of intimate something on Facebook and the reaction was severe. And I, then I started thinking, then I started looking at those relationships and thinking, well, were those real, real, real relationships to begin with? Were they like, would those people have had my back, you know, if like a real minor disagreement around politics would be enough for them to want to cut all ties with me I, I often hear people talking about you know would 
so and so have my back and i've never i've never really thought of that as a as a criteria it's not something i really uh think about i i just i don't look for people to have my back it's, it's not something i think about but i well, but it is a very normal human reaction well yeah i mean to really be, okay there's you can have friendly acquaintances but to have friends i think friends have to meet a higher standard and like that have your back standard is i think the good one to, to use because you know that's how you that's how you know if there's a real bond there you know I've I mean, never what, used what you... it. I have never used that as a standard. It's never okay. occurred to me. I've never, I, I don't think I've ever consciously sought friends who would stay friends to me, even if it became like against their interests. I, I've always just expected the, my friends to behave in their own best interests. And that, that means that they would have me in their life to the extent that that was consonant with their best interests. But if, events change so I was no longer consonant with their best interests I would always expect them to move on from me so I've just never had that criteria it's never uh, I guess friends are no, just I, like we enjoy spending time together but I've never expected them to have my back well maybe 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 um I think it's a good standard it's not that I that's what I do want for my friends right i don't i'm not looking for people to quote unquote have my back in a literal sense i'm saying those are the people that it, it's a stronger bond it's it, it represents like a, a a stronger bond like um you need a ride to the airport right or you need a ride from the airport you uh isn't that sort of sort of the price of like real friendship is that you're willing to inconvenience yourself from time to time, not necessarily sacrifice your interests, but occasionally um, inconvenience yourself. Yeah. I've never thought of it in those terms. I've never uh, expected, you know, friends to give me a ride to the airport or a ride to the hospital. Now, sometimes, you know, friendships will develop and I mean, I've almost never used people I've never asked anyone for a ride to the airport or pretty much a ride to anywhere. Um, but I mean, sometimes friendships develop, but I, I just, it's just putting too, just too high of a, a price. Yeah. I've just never, so for example, having my back, I would never, I would never want you to like have my back in some kind of, you know, internet, you know, conflagration. Like I, I wouldn't expect you to, or even wish for you to speak up for me. Like, let's say you're part of a group in, in real life or on the internet where every single person was trashing me. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just don't think it would give me any benefit if you spoke up for me. I, I've never expected this from, from people. It, it doesn't do me any good if you go, oh, Forty's not such a bad guy. Um, mm. But I know that's really important to a lot of people. But for whatever reason, it's just never been a consideration for me. Like, I wouldn't want you to waste your breath or waste your energy, you know, defending me if you're in a group in real life or online that was trashing me like i i wouldn't do it for, for you i'm not someone who goes around defending people it's just pointless it doesn't change anyone's mind and so let's say i was in a group
group of five people and four of them just, you know, trashed Elliot Blatt. I mean, I wouldn't bother. I'd just go, huh, okay, you know, understand where you're coming from and, you know, I, okay. I and just move on. Uh, so you, are you still um, counseling people uh, with the 12 steps? I, uh, yeah, still I still have... sponsor people. But, but I tell them, like, don't ever bother trying to defend me. You know, don't. Um, but these aren't you know, your friends. You, do you consider these people your friends? Uh, some of them I've become friendly with, but I, I'm not sure if I'd consider them friends. Because it's, it's a weird, um, it's a weird style of relationship. It's a real, real mode of, it's a weird mode of relationship because it's, it's sort of intimate, but it's, there's no friendship. And when we're talking about 12 step type matters, there's a certain level of intimacy there, isn't there? Yes, there is intimacy, but there's often not friendship. I don't always like my sponsees, and I would expect that many of my sponsees don't particularly like me either. <laughs> okay, but why do you do that? Oh, because it's good for me, and it's frequently good for them. Hmm. Just like I would, you know, take on a client or, or do a job. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the client the client or the, the boss doesn't have to be a friend. It's just an interaction that's good for me. But your sponsees don't pay you, right? It's a volunteer effort that you Right, do. but but there's still a payoff. Like by me mm -hmm. taking an interest in their recovery, that's really healthy for me. Like so ha having like having a job or having a client, right? That's, you know, wonderfully uh boosting of reality because <laughs> effectively for a normal person for 40 hours a week, you have to put someone else above your own desires. You're you're effectively a slave 40 hours a week. And then, and then to add 5, 10, 15 hours above and beyond that, where you put something, you know, someone else above and beyond what you desire, right? It's really, it's, it's humbling and it's just uh, for egotistical, selfish people like myself, it's, uh, it's a good, uh, good change. Okay. Um, now, let me turn the question around. How many times, how many hours at times or a week? Or a day, do you have face-to-face -face interaction with people that bring you joy? Uh, I would say, I would say, about forty plus hours a week. Forty plus. Now, are these through your religious community, or uh, any yeah, of these outside? Yeah, religious of... community, uh, twelve-step community, uh, friends, and uh, clients, and work situations. Well, well, you're you're a lucky man, Luke. You're fortunate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> how would you feel if you were in an office uh, forty hours a week, uh, filled with people that you liked? Oh, I'd love it. I'd love yeah. it. I think it's great. But I, <laughs> I just had so many bad experiences in offices. <laughs> and, and what's the common denominator on all these experiences? Well, obviously it's me, right? Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't think it's only me. Right? No, it's, I obviously mean, it's some, not uh, only you. The world doesn't right? you know, revolve around me or you. Right. Um, I, uh, I, 
I generally, <laughs> I genuinely feel I get like the lion's share of bad luck when it comes to work situations. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, I, I don't know, Luke, I, I, I just, I do my work, right? And I, I'm ultimately, I'm responsible. So in my, you know, the work I do, like I'm responsible for it when you know succeeding or failing right and if it fails there's just a lot of repercussions right so i have to sort of have uh, a serious disposition at work right i can't engage in a lot of socializing because if i do the work suffers and there's real consequences to people and then there are bad feelings that go you know all the way around so but there's in offices there's a lot of people who it really doesn't matter if they show up or not, you know, their, 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 their contributions don't really matter. They're just kind of fluff and they create all these social dramas and things like that, that I, that I simply can't participate in because it would put me at risk. It would put all of, it would put the whole company at risk if I were to sort of engage in those things. And I, I feel like there's no, I don't know, there's, there's never been like the respect or accountability for that. There's no sort of, uh, there's just a lot of bad behavior in offices, Luke. Yeah, but there's nothing you can do really about how other people behave. To what extent are you responsible for this lack of joyful interactions with other people? Like, where zero are you going Luke. wrong? Zero, zero, nothing. I'm doing nothing. I didn't do nothing, Luke. No, I don't mean that. Didn't do nothing. I, I can't do nothing. I'm being serious. I'm being honest. Like, I really don't feel like I've done anything wrong. Like, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, this woman, my boss, my so these companies have all this, these uh, ridiculous hierarchies of managers. And so my direct boss, right, my immediate supervisor came over and asked me, a question and then I answered it you know I just answered it and I thought of perfectly you know uh, uh, business like professional courteous manner and you know a couple of hours later she, she was irate at me she wanted to talk it through because my tone of voice she felt like tone of voice was was um, you know disrespectful or insulted her in some way and she wanted to but she couldn't quite say it she was just sort of like dancing around this and she was holding me captive and she was trying to uh sort of exert authority on me by sort of all these this strange lattice of intimations and things right just a, a completely useless interaction and um i truly didn't do anything luke i just i was, I was asked a question and i answered it politely and that was that and then someone else's psycho drama had to be injected into my my work experience and I, I i just don't think you can say that there aren't looney tunes out there who do real damage yeah but the, the, what you control is yourself so what was your role in setting this woman off like push yourself like 
you know, go go huge, go uh, uh, you know, go big. Uh, what I, was your I, role? She was. Here's the truth. She was an imposter, right? She knew she was an imposter, and there's a lot of women like this in tech. They're imposters. They're there. They're promoted socially. They're not there because they have any particular skill in the domain, right? They're imposters. They know they're imposters. And um, if you answer a question or you know something, this triggers, this sets off this fear and terror in them that, you know, you know, she knew that I knew she was an imposter, right? This was the subtext that was going on. And so that's not on me. But what was your role? Where was it? Where, where were you? Where we, where could you have done something differently? Obviously this was a very frustrating interaction. You seem to have, you know, a, a lot of them. So what could be a variable that you could possibly change that would make these sort of interactions less frustrating? I need to work for myself and never, never talk to another human being for the rest of my life. That sounds like a winning strategy. <laughs> I can deal with people on my terms, right? When I deal with people on my terms, you know, I, I'm a rather gregarious person. People tend to like my company. They look forward to interacting with me. They find me funny. But if I'm in a hierarchical relationship and I have to, I have to like ingest someone else's bullshit, yes, I become ornery. I, 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 I become, I have defenses that I need to, to, to put up around me because my livelihood's at stake. So how often do other people have to ingest your bullshit? Never. I don't offer any bullshit. I offer clarity, wisdom, and light only. You don't think that's possible? See, this is the way the 12 steps hurt you, Luke. You... You sometimes you think I think that you play a role in your own suffering. Wow, yeah. <laughs> this is a dogma. This is just a dogma. It's like <laughs> well, you know, I'm open to the possibility that, you know, I contribute, but I think it's a mistake to always just, you know commit harry-carry every time there's a disagreement and someone's wrong and you're right, right? Sometimes you are objectively right and someone else is objectively wrong and their behavior is bad and yours is fine and honorable. So you can't just say there's two people, just because there's two people present, right, that both were both are equally at fault. So like the subway guy, right? Mm-hmm. So, this, you know, this guy was acting out. <laughs> he tried to restrain him or whatever. The guy ends up dying. Uh, yeah, he could have just done nothing, right? But he didn't. He, he played, you know, he decided to take on the heroic role. So, yeah, theoretically he played a part but he wasn't the he wasn't the uh you know the the aggressive party the the instigating party in that exchange well 
the, the as I understand it, the, the guy who died had not committed any violent behavior in that interaction. He was just saying crazy things. So as I understand it, uh, the the Marine was the one who instigated violence and killed him. So I would say, without being you know, authoritative on, on the topic, because I don't know that much, I would say that if someone is not committing violence in, in that sort of situation, you should not commit violence on them, even if they're saying crazy things. Yeah, I... I, I, I... I probably reached for an example. That was the first example that came to mind, and I don't know the specifics. Um, but let's just say, let's let's continue as though. Let's just continue as though um, my my example is as I'm portraying it. Right? We okay. have somebody, right? So yeah. let's we're, we're let's talking say Penny's one hundred percent right. Yes. Let's say so. Exactly. So. <clears throat> Uh, so let's let's so what's important so, uh, here? Let's so, say, so, so, okay, so is is being right important? You can be dead right. All right, if there's a on so there was a time that I blew through a red light at like 60, 70 miles per hour, and mm-hmm. if you had pulled in front of me, you had the right of way. You would have been right, and you would have been dead. Mm-hmm. So, from most of what you've been saying tonight, being right is of premium importance to you. And I'm suggesting that in all sorts of arenas, being right is not the most important thing. Well, hmm. So it's better to to be alive rather than insisting on the right of way and getting killed. So deferring to someone else's you know horrible criminal behavior of driving through a red light at 70 miles an hour and maintaining your life I would say is a more adaptive strategy than insisting on being right and ending up dead. Okay. I, I, I think I think all these various metaphors and examples have gone off the rails a bit, right? Um, so you've now encountered this at work. You've never had this. Ex- experience of where course i have all, all the time where other okay, people are and, wrong and i'm right okay yeah right all the time so, yeah, happen all the time not just at work, in life w- would you avoid those if you could yeah yeah i avoid okay. i try to avoid situations that are against my best interests and insisting on being right is really in my best interest so okay remember so, josh so, randall okay, all right, remember all right, josh so wait, wait. Go ahead. Remember Josh Randall? He was a regular yeah. in the chat. And yeah. one time I picked on him. And he has never come back to the show since. And I, I did text him an apology. But I, mm-hmm. I believe I was, you know, there were, there were right things in what I had to say. But I made a mistake on picking on an integral member of this community. And he has never come back since. And I miss him. You know, I miss what he, he brought to the show. So even if what I said was right... I suffered as a result of being "quote unquote" right. Okay, pass. Well, they're totally different things. So, so I'm not saying you could be right, but you're you're texting and trolling him um, 
is a different thing, right? Uh, even if your trolling was based on being correct, um, that's not the issue because you don't immediately, you might have been quote unquote in the wrong about trolling him, but um, his thin skin couldn't really handle it. And so did you, you know, did you really lose by getting rid of him? Yeah, That's I lost. I, I, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed having, uh, having Josh, you know, in, in, in the chat and having, you know, just a 100% positive relationship with Josh over the course of about uh, six years. And so uh, as far as like thin skin, I mean, we're all incredibly thin skinned at times. That's just part of being human. You, you can't escape having a thin skin at times. We're all vulnerable. Everybody hurts, bro. Everybody hurts. <laughs> and everybody cries. Yeah. Well done. Um, I, I, I still don't think we're connecting, though. And I don't think the ideas are being... Uh, um... Ventilated? Yes. So you don't, you don't suddenly... Uh, if you're with a group of people that are pro-homosexual uh, marriage, you don't change your position on homosexual marriage, right? I don't, I don't speak up and disagree with them. I just right. uh, I just go with the flow. I mean, let's say there are all sorts of other positive benefits to the interaction. I just disagree with them about uh, gay marriage. So I right. just don't so say let's anything. Say, so let's say they're just going yakety yak yak. You're at a social situation, mm -hmm. and they're all going yakety yak yak about homo marriage and how great it is. And mm -hmm. uh, what do you do? Do you just sit there and hang your head and stare at your plate, or do you? Do you, do you, does your face get red like Larry David's? Uh, you know, how do you, no. I how mean, do you handle I, that? I, I, don't, I don't think my face ever gets red. I, I, I can't recall ever being in that situation, but okay. I mean, I've certainly been in a situation where other people have, you know, points of view that I strongly disagree with, and I handle it by keeping quiet. Yeah. And if I say anything, it will be some sort of joke that will be enjoyed by you know, some, some of the people there. Yeah. Um, I used to do that too, but now it doesn't seem like um, my jokes were appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Luke, I don't know. I, I, I'm sorry for this kind of scattershot call. You know, I didn't, I just kind of was quick on the draw, but um I don't know, try and hear what I'm trying to say. Like, you could be you at, at a more decisive level, right? Do you feel like you are hedging or you could be more decisively Luke at all uh, times? Yeah, I, I could definitely, I, I would say, use the word differentiated. Like, I could always be more of myself and say less, less needy. Um, at the same time, I don't want to gratuitously and need needlessly hurt the relationships most important to me so both both aims are important to me yeah. becoming who i yeah. am and simultaneously building the relationships most important to me fair enough fair enough all right look i'll, I'll let you go I'll, and I'll, I'll meditate upon what you've said blessings all right blessings, blessings. okay all take right. care okay bye so talking about uh, people who give you a seductive uh, belief bubble, right? And how it's so easy to fall into it.
but then it's almost impossible to think your way out again. That's what gurus do. That's what preachers do. Let's get a little bit from decoding the gurus here. Christopher Cavanaugh, Matt Brown. Uh, like a little tweet I promoted, and I also saw one of these like YouTube shorts or TikTok shorts or whatever they are, with him talking about a study which suggested that when men smell sad tears, very important. So this is a critique of Andrew Huberman, who's a professor at Stanford University and is huge on YouTube and like friends of mine just swear by Andrew Huberman, just, you know, do everything he says. Sad tears of women, women who have been exposed to a sad stimulus. They essentially are less horny. They read people as less attractive or whatever. <laughs> and it's, I was listening to going, what? This paper came out in science showing that humans, men in particular in this study, have a strong biological response and hormonal response to the tears of women. What they did is they had women, and in this case it was only women, for whatever reason, cry, and they collected their tears. Then those tears were smelled by male subjects, or male subjects got what was essentially the control, which was the saline. Men that smelled these tears that were evoked by sadness had a reduction in their testosterone levels that was significant. They also had a reduction in brain areas that were associated with sexual arousal. And then I looked up the study that he referenced, and would you be surprised to learn, Matt, it's a small sample study with a lot of outcomes only some of which, you know, reach significance. A lot of p-values hovering 0.03, 0.02, 0.015, and so on. Chris, I, I saw your tweet about this, and I did notice that the people had reported p is less than 0.02, p is less than yeah. 0.037. Yeah, it's sense, right? it must be just right. <laughs> right, because, yeah, I know. And the other thing is, Huberman still, you know, he has a cadre of defenders. I haven't spent a great deal of time with his content, but I would say he's guilty of overhyping relatively weak studies and throwing in maybe like hand-waving disclaimers, right? But when I saw this, I had somebody respond on Twitter saying, you know, well, but th this paper is in science. <laughs> I was like, and? Like, that doesn't make the quality of the paper any better. And it took me literally about one minute to discover a 2017 attempted replication of the paper that he's citing. I don't know if there's a different one that he was talking about, but in any case, it's a paper where they tried to replicate a, a different research team. How do you think that fared? Mm, probably not well. Failed? Yes, failed. So, yeah. you know... You're kidding me. You're kidding me. So <laughs> yeah. when men smell unhappy tears, it doesn't make them less horny. They're just as horny as before. We don't know yet, Matt. The question <laughs> is, the thing is, we don't know because the literature is just not advanced enough on this topic yet. But it's, it's what you're saying. Nothing can decrease men's horniness. There's like literally nothing known to science. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's the takeaway. But it's just, I see people often respond and they're like, why are you being mean to such and such, right? Like somebody that they like if they cite study. And I want to tell them, it doesn't matter who cites the study, right? And it doesn't matter what the topic is. The criteria for a good study is the same, right? Now, do people apply it consistently? No. But the criteria is the same. If you have low-powered studies that have multiple outcomes, appear to be engaging in practices that allow for multiple researcher degrees of freedom to be exercised, they're not pre-registered, you know, sometimes the data isn't available or whatever, you should be skeptical of the results. That's all. Okay, so why was Christianity so successful? Because it created an in-group where people sacrifice for each other where you had a real sense of community and you had a sense of meaning and purpose in life, then why did Christianity decline? Because people found other, you know, more effective ways of finding purpose, meaning, and in-groups in life. So much of uh, politics, much of religion, you know, much of what people do is going to be powered by the quality of the interactions of the community, of the, the friends and the aesthetics of what you participate in. And so people like uh, Nick Fuentes or uh, Richard Spencer, right, they create an aesthetic, they create a sense of humor, they create an in-group that adds meaning and purpose to people's lives. So what type of person, you know, falls under the sway of a Nick Fuentes or of an Antifa or, you know, communist activist? Right? They're not happy people with families, generally speaking, all right? They're people with a giant hole in their soul, just like me when I discovered Dennis Prager. So 
it's a big big warning sign when you have a desperate you know drivingly strong need for meaning you're willing to just jump on you know board with all sorts of seductive belief bubbles just be skeptical look for independent replications look for how big the claim is that's being made and then adjust your excitement accordingly and it's yeah overhyping studies is really common and it's always the same thing so just you know you don't have to you don't have to dislike people to know when they're overhyping studies or they're ignoring low quality signals i'm just impressed like we can go and start talking about any topic and you will somehow bend it towards your own personal wins of the week and have an opportunity to rant about open science. This is, <laughs> this is you to no, a T, Chris. It, look, it, you brought up Huberman. You brought it up. That, that me. And also, the point with the open science thing, Matt, is because it doesn't matter the topic, right? Like, I'm not an expert on ivermectin studies. But when you look at the... So you'll notice a lot of people who normally denigrate academics and scientific studies, like uh, Dennis Prager, they love to embrace academics and scientific studies where they support their point of view but uh, not all studies are created equal right some studies are much more powerful than other studies and it's not like if you have 10 weak studies that they overpower the evidence found in one strong study but to distinguish the weak studies from the strong studies takes work and it's not as emotionally satisfying as you know finding that that one weak study that uh, backs up a point of view on life that brings you pleasure and meaning and happiness and an in-group and excitement and laughter. The literature, you see the same flags pop up. When you look at supplement studies, you see the same flags pop up. When you look at stereotype threat, you see the same flags. So just learn the methods, <laughs> learn the basic way to assess studies critically, and a whole world will open up to you where you can look at studies and be critical about them. It's an exciting world. It's called academia. I need to do some research on what happens when you drink somebody's tears. There's not like, you know, smelling. Okay, that's not going to do much. I can see why that didn't replicate. I'd like to see some research into drinking tears. Liberal tears, conservative tears. Irish tears, Australian tears, Matt's tears. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So anyway, that's Huberman. And actually, Matt, we have a little bit of a medley of various guru activity that we wanted to get to. And in order to introduce that, I think there's a specific clip that people need to hear. And I, I don't think we should give any introduction. We should just let them hear the raw audio and people can judge for themselves. Yep, no editorializing. I mean, I could go on forever. So here's a fun one, music. I'm gonna propose that you learn how to play guitar, but I'm gonna propose it in a way that is going to be almost completely the opposite of almost everybody's experience of that. Take a guitar or any other kind of device and do exactly and nothing but this. Pluck one string and listen to it. Try to see how carefully you can sense the sound that it makes. The difference between the strength of the plucking and the strength of the sound. How it becomes quieter over time. Literally just do that. Then maybe, maybe, if you feel up to it, consider plucking another string and seeing if you can notice the difference between the two. That's discernment. That is discernment in its rawest, deepest sense. And don't do anything more than that. That's humility. Don't try to rush into something. Don't try to suddenly become be playing Freebird or whatever, stairway to heaven. Just learn how to listen to the sound of a single note being plucked and dying. And maybe also, if you can, see if you can relate to that as the story of all lives. And that's the sacred. So there you go. It's actually not that hard. Yeah, that's pretty simple. <laughs> that's the secret. That's it. And so the that's promise how you was... Guitar. That's how you learn guitar. That's, that's where we started, right? That's how you learn guitar. Well, it's like Jordan Peterson, you know, waxing lyrical over the country rock music he heard. Um, that, <laughs> you know, the divine is contained in those moments. Matt. And yeah. yeah, I just, I love... There's so much to love about that clip, but also at the beginning, as somebody on our subreddit pointed out, he says, you know, pick up a guitar or any other device. <laughs> so it's <laughs> yeah. not even specific to guitars. It can be any other device. This Make two sounds with the device. You know, just listen to them. That's, a, that's amazing, amazing stuff. Look, that just stands alone. It's a beautiful, shining gem. Yes, yeah, so what we want to do, what we thought we'd do is, you know, just revisit some of our previous topics, see how they're traveling, see whether or not they're still dispensing wisdom. Uh, and that was that Jordan was, Hall. That was Jordan Hall. Who doesn't know, Sensemaker Supreme, teaching you how to play guitar.
So not everyone in our audience is a, <laughs> you know, you can say you're a guitarist. <laughs> yep. Yep. And you're more, you're a more humble person. You know how to play guitar. You've learned how to practice discernment. And what was the last thing you said? Something about the interconnection. That's the secret. That's the secret. So pluck a guitar, two strings, and that's discernment. Stop. That's humility. You don't want to be plucking three or four, trying to play like, <laughs> like a show off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. And, and if you can detect the difference in notes, that's a secret. Done. Done. Lesson one, finished. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Uh, now practice your strumming. Yeah. Like Jordan Hall does what he does better than any other guru. Like he, he, he maxes out a particular dimension of our thing, whatever that is. Um, so he's good. And another person, Chris, who has, has changed. This is James Lindsay. James Lindsay, he's evolved. We've talked about this. You know, he went from being, you know, anti-woke. New atheist. New atheist. He started off being, new atheist. Yeah. And then became like a Twitter troll, essentially. Anti-woke Twitter troll. Yeah. Your mom type stuff. And Right-wing reactionary. Christian mm, sovereign nations, weird sort of helper outer. Yeah, not, yeah. Christian kind of like dancing around with Christianity. He's not a Christian, but he's playing footy with Christians. Okay, what about the nefarious elites and professionals who are trying to make the resurrection impossible? So, Melky Godwood podcast says, strongly suspect it's a demonic psyop, the way American morticians automatically embalm the dead as soon as they get them. Quick, let's drain all their blood and replace it with formaldehyde. Probably to halt the pineal DMT process might make resurrection impossible. Those damn satanic morticians, man trying to just embalm the dead as quickly as possible and then, gosh darn it, making resurrection near impossible. That's a Shonda. And so, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he's, he's been good. He's clearly stared into the orb of wokeness for far too long because it's had an effect on him, Chris. And I will read out to you his most recent missive on the Twitter machine. On a suggestion earlier, I watched a lecture from a Catholic priest who is also an exorcist. It's about demonology, your favorite topic, Chris. And it was sent to me, unsurprisingly, because it offers some insights into communist psychology. Now, I don't believe in demons, but I got some insights. So the biggest thing that stuck out to me is that he claimed that demons are characterized by an absolute and intentional rejection of the assignment they had been given. And in that absolute rejection, they are damned and so work to negate what they were purposed to do. I don't think there is a better definition for demonic than that. Having been led through self-pity to self-hate takes it upon themselves to negate the true purpose for their being, which on some level they know, as rebellious angels, demons would know it perfectly. He also pointed out that demons influence people through their emotions and their interpretations of features of their lives. I found that accurate to the purpose of understanding communist psychology also, as I've been calling it a religion of pathos for some time now. Now, I won't read the entire thing, but one last bit, Chris. If we take the logos as the order and structure of the universe, demonology would describe willful rejection of the logos. Nothing could make such an invitation better than emotion that eventually turns toxic, in brackets, pathos turned pathological. Self-pity to self-hate to just hate. It goes on, Chris. It goes mm. on. But um, you're really waxing lyrical and bringing in, this is, I guess, been happening the for a while yeah, the logos. The logos. it keeps cropping up, doesn't it? Lots of people are interested in the logos. They're addicted to the logos. Yeah. Everybody's talking about the logos. John Fravaki, I think, also has a side interest in the logos. It's Game B, I, I, I think, Game B, Jordan Hall as well, probably on the logos at the weekends. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's cosmic, Matt. That makes you think. It yeah, makes you think. I'm just sort of impressed or just curious as to the direction he's going. It's this dovetailing of a kind of, I don't know, reactionary politics. But in Okay, so Jordan Hall and company were, were talking in previous months about uh, humanity's just been playing game A, which is like some kind of trivial way of going about life. But there's this whole other way of living, game B. And no one really knows exactly what it is, but isn't it alluring? Isn't it wonderful to think that there's this fantastic way of life, uh, game B, that's just out there? And like, how long are we trivial, mundane people going to continue just soldiering on through game a when there's this wondrous transcendent game b available anti-workness but also godliness like he talks about being at war with the laws of nature and nature's god or merely being derelict 
will reliably return bad results. Combined with self-pity, immaturity, and entitlement indulgence, this leads to externalizing one's failure and thus one's locus of control. Destruction lies that way. What, what is even he doing? He's psychologizing. He, well, doesn't it end that thread with him like talking about how discipline is the answer and yeah. like training your mind, become a, like he essentially, as with all of them, wants to recruit people into looking up to him as the would-be instructor on how to train your mind and develop discipline in the face yeah. of modern corrupt culture it's so fucking boring Matt. just they're carbon <laughs> copies of each other they're complaining about the woke mind virus and they all cream their pants over the logos <laughs> that's yeah. maybe a bit graphic but you know just i've just said they have a unhealthy fascination with logos and christian symbology and all this kind of stuff like get some new material like there's all the religions couldn't they go into the hindu pantheon no, or no, something no, christianity is the best one even if you're an atheist yeah like it is it's self-help right he talks about you know growing a sense of mastery becoming strong and not blaming others growing into liberty talking about being under god's law provides protection if we ex merely accept natural law submitting to truth truth comma logos in brackets lends itself to success and peace like it's it's cosmic it's anti-woke it's it's religious demons but also self-help i mean it's jordan peterson's got a lot it's of jordan to peterson it's like a knockoff peterson-esque shtick and i don't think any of them know the wow gotta disavow that that very crude talk about creaming over the logos consciously on, doing that i mean some of them i, I guess do, but i think like Lindsay's so incredibly unaware He's so lacking in self-awareness of where his influences are that, you know, he's adopted almost entirely the opinions and views of Michael O'Fallon, right? All the anti-globalist Alex Jones type stuff. And he doesn't recognize at all that he didn't come up with those ideas, right? That mm. he has just swallowed them from the ecosystem that was, was around long before James was there and will be around long after he feeds back into the ether. So it's just, it, it is frustrating. They're manifestations of the fucking egregore of annoyance. <laughs> <laughs> they just feel like lost boys, like especially James. He's gliding around and sort of shifting from one sort of thing that provides some kind of meaning to the next, dispensing these supposedly Extreme of words. Matt. Extreme mm, of that I, think that, well, I think that partly explains along with the personality defects and, and that kind of thing. But like, once you see people who are able to so fluidly glide across ideologies in such a relatively short space of time with little dissonance. I think it's just illustrative of the, the appeal of having some ideology or worldview, which, which explains things, right? And which gives some attention and meaning and purpose and so on. So it doesn't really matter what flavor it is. And yeah. that's the consistent factor, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, anyway, there you have it. That's our two nuggets of wisdom for, for this week. We're visiting a couple of previous gurus. We've learned how to play guitar, identified the logos. That should help people out till the next episode. Well, yeah. Okay, there you go. Quick show tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.